Good morning, church. Welcome to the house of God. Exciting to be here together to sing some Christmas carols finally together. I know we've been singing them for about a month now, um, but it's good to, good to sing to the Lord and just be reminded of these events. Once you bow your hearts with me, we will pray as we begin. Father, we are just so indebted to your love. Again and again, we are reminded that we are cherished, we are beloved. We have been graced, Lord, beyond measure. And where our sin abounded, grace abounded all the more. And we're great sinners, but we do have a great merciful God, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your word, for your word that reminds us and teaches and instructs us about Jesus Christ. Truly from the first book to the last, it's all about this precious person of Jesus Christ. And as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would show us Christ, that you would help our gaze to be focused on him and just to be reminded and, and freshly taught of who he is and who we are in him and why he is so important and why he's so precious. And so I pray that you would prepare our hearts and that you would speak clearly through me and that Jesus would be exalted and glorified this morning. We ask for your glory and our growth. Amen. Amen. Well, please open with me to Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. This morning we are diving into a new book, the Gospel of Matthew, in a series titled God With Us. And as you open there, you also have a short outline available in your programs that you can follow along. As usual, we have three short points. Uh, seems to be the case with, uh, with many sermons. But as we open up to this gospel, we come to the turning point in scripture. From Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament built up an expectation for something great that would come. Indeed, someone great was to be among men in order to accomplish the will of God like no other person before him had done. The story of Christ does not begin in Matthew 1.1. The promises of Christ are carried in scripture from Genesis 3.15, in fact, through the narratives of the prophets, priests, and kings, and are ultimately fulfilled in Bethlehem, in the person of that little baby boy who is, as we find out on the pages of New Testament, the son of God and the son of man. Everything, and I mean everything, is shaped by this monumental event, the birth of Jesus Christ. Even our calendar. Even our calendar is, is shaped by this event. Time and history as we know it. There is B.C. and then there's A.D., there was a time before Christ, 
and there's a time in the year of his death and after. And church, as we begin to look at these events, these very familiar Christmas stories, Christmas scenes, I pray that we would have a fresh perspective this year. You know, it's easy to hum our way through the Christmas story because they are just so familiar. We've heard of them. We've read them. We had them read to us as we were growing up, most of us in, in Christian homes. But I pray that as, as one of my favorite song goes, that we may come behold the wondrous mystery. In the dawning of the king, he the theme of heaven's praises robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. By his grace, we desire to do just that by pointing to Jesus Christ so that we may behold and look to him who took on flesh to ransom us. Now, most of you know that there are four gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And all four gospels, they tell the story. They tell one story, and that is the story of Jesus Christ. But all four gospels, they tell the story from different perspectives in, the, in a different way. For instance, Matthew portrays Jesus Christ as a suffering servant. And if you were to look through the 16 chapters of, of Mark, then you will notice that Matthew has this uh, really fast moving storyline that focuses on Jesus Christ serving. So Mark portrays Jesus as the servant. Luke, on the other hand, we found out that Luke was a doctor, remember in Colossians? And he shows Jesus as this compassionate man to the outsiders and to the outcasts. Now, if you open up the John, John is, is radically different. 92% of John is unique from the other gospels. And he emphasizes that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Now, Matthew, Matthew is different. Matthew caters to the Jews. He makes a case that Jesus is the promised Messiah, the King. He is the fulfillment of the entire Old Testament scripture. Almost every paragraph in Matthew points to him and his kingdom. Jesus Christ is king and he came in order to inaugurate a kingdom. And Matthew here in 1.1, he begins with a genealogy for a reason. Because to understand and appreciate the person of Jesus Christ, you need to understand and appreciate his background. And this is what Matthew does beginning in verse 2 of chapter 1. The long-awaited promised Messiah, the restorer of God's kingdom and the redeemer of God's people, Matthew says, is this man Jesus Christ. This is Matthew's central message. His, his purpose entire purpose for writing 28 chapters of Matthew. Each page of this gospel is aimed at his readers and us, Grace Hill Church, to be the people who know, who love, who follow, and who share Jesus Christ. Matthew himself, a disciple of Christ, means to disciple us in the faith by explaining to us what the kingdom of God looks like. 
or as he likes to refer to this kingdom as the kingdom of heaven. Because he's writing to the Jews, he never refers to this kingdom in his gospel as the kingdom of God, but always to the kingdom of heaven. So if you're there in Matthew 1.1, let's begin by reading the first 17 verses before we look at them in more detail. Matthew 1.1, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab and Aminadab, the father of Nashon and Nashon, the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth and Obed, the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David, the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah, and Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat, Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Uh, Jehoshaphat, sorry, verse 8. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Joram. And Joram, the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham. Jotham, the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz, the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh. Manasseh, the father of Amon. And Amon, the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Sheltiel, and Sheltiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, and Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor. Azor was the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Iliud. Iliud was the father of Eleazar, Eleazar the father of Mathan, and Mathan the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. Well, that was a mouthful. Kind of reminded us of Colossians chapter 4 again, right? Well, we're going to look at these verses. And as we look at them, I want us to to have this, this main theme in mind that Jesus, Matthew writes, Jesus is the rightful heir through whom all the promises of God are fulfilled to all of us. Jesus is the rightful heir through whom all the promises of God are fulfilled. And the way I want to look at this is not to go through every single name. Otherwise, we'll be here till tomorrow. I want us to look at three points, really the first verse as Matthew outlines for us. Number one, the first truth that Matthew wants us to see from this genealogy is that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Jesus is the promised Messiah. You know, like many good writers, Matthew signals his thesis from the very beginning of the opening of his letter. 
the opening verse of this gospel introduces its main character and describes his identity. This gospel, Matthew says, will be all about Jesus, the Messiah. But not only Matthew says that this Jesus is radically unique. This person about whom he's writing this entire gospel is radically different. So in the beginning with his genealogy and his miraculous conception at the end of verse, uh, at the end of chapter one, and then in chapter two with the visit of Magi and everyone else following through his works and the words Throughout the entire gospel record, Matthew's goal is to prove to Jews as well as to us that Jesus is special. He is, in fact, the long-awaited heir, the promised one of Jacob. He is the anointed Messiah. Now, in the gospels, the term or the title Messiah is this comprehensive title for Jesus. If you look at all the other epistles in the rest of New Testament, uh, when Paul referred to Jesus Christ, he almost used this as his personal name. But the Gospels never use Christ as his personal name, but more than that, they refer to him as this is his title from Old Testament. Messiah in Hebrew means the anointed one. And in Greek, it means Christ. That's why some of your translations, if you have like ESV, you would have Jesus the Christ rather than Jesus the Messiah. And that's literally what it says there in Greek. But Jesus is the promised Messiah. This is central, not only to the whole gospel, but specifically to this introduction, because at least two other times, Matthew mentions this. Look at verse one, Jesus the Messiah. Look at verse 16, Jesus, who was born, who is called the Messiah. And then at the end of verse 17, to the Messiah. So then the very first thing Matthew wants his readers to know, the primary thing he wants us to know about this Jesus, that he is the one to whom all the law and all the writings and all the prophets pointed to. He is the Christ himself. You know, it's very interesting to note how Matthew opens up this gospel. The first four words in Greek of this gospel is book, beginning, Jesus Christ. Book, beginning, Jesus Christ. So it's a book or a record of the beginnings of Jesus Christ. Now, Matthew, as I said, think about this, was written predominantly to the Jews. And his Jewish flavor is evident all over this gospel, including more than 60 Old Testament references, some of which we'll begin to look at next week. And because of this, many comment that Matthew is very deliberate in the use of his terms here at the very beginning of his gospel. Because as he writes, he wants Genesis 1-1 ringing in the ears of his readers in the beginning God created. So whereas the book of Genesis tells us how the world began in the beginning, God created it. The gospel of Matthew now tells us how the God who created the world becomes a man. 
Genesis reveals to us the, the wonder of creation. Matthew, on the other hand, reveals to us the wonder of incarnation. And Matthew will spend the first two chapters focusing on this record and the rest of the gospel, proving this point again and again and again. Jesus is the promised Messiah. Pay attention, he says. He's unlike anyone who ever came on the scene before. This man is different. But this first statement is true because it's hanging on other qualifications, which Matthew emphasizes next with his genealogy. So the second truth Matthew wants us to see in this text is that Jesus is the promised king. Not only is he the promised Messiah, but he's the promised king. Look with me again at verse 1-1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David. The son of David. He identifies this Messiah as the son of David. I want you to notice the structure as we were reading of these verses. Matthew arranges Jesus's family tree in a very orderly fashion, which, which definitely has some theological significance. He divides his genealogy into three equal sections of 14 generations. He summarizes them in verse 17. We read it. Now, you probably thought about the significance of this before when you read it, because surely there are more than 42 generations between Abraham and Jesus. So what is Matthew doing here? What's he trying to do? Well, often genealogies were arranged in such a way as uh, they would only highlight important figures in your family tree. Or sometimes they were arranged in order to allow for for easier memorization. And so they would break them down equally, or they would start each generation with a certain letter. And no doubt this breakdown of Matthew uh, is rather symbolic. The repeated phrase here that most of you guys picked up, right? Was the father of, or if you got the King's James version, beget. And he beget, beget, beget the father of. It doesn't necessarily mean that he was a direct parent of, but also could mean that he was an ancestor of. So it's not the guy who fathered him, but the one who was in his family tree. And, and Matthew is retelling the history of Israel in light of who Jesus Christ is. And he highlights, look, three distinct periods in their history. Number one, he says from Abraham to David, he highlights a period in which one family, Abraham, Abraham's family became this mighty nation, kingdom, a great kingdom from Abraham, one family to David, huge kingdom. Then he highlights the second generation or the second period from David to Jeconiah, a period in which this great and massive kingdom declines. As the people continue to disobey the Lord and they're deported and they're scattered among the nations. And then the third period from Jeconiah to Joseph, the kingdom completely vanishes. So now for more than 400 years in between the old and the new Testament, there's no kingdom of Israel at this very moment that um, Matthew is writing this epistle. They are under Roman empire under Roman rule. They're not only ruling their land, they're ruling the world. 
And part of Israel's hope, their great anticipation is for the coming of this great king, God's anointed, who will rescue this nation from these Roman abuses. And that's why we were just singing, right? Oh, come, oh, come. This was their prayer. This was the prayer of Israel. Oh, come, oh, come, Emmanuel. And what? Ransom captive. We're captive, captives of Israel. But now Matthew writes, here comes this promised Messiah who will restore the kingdom and is in fact the promised king himself. The title of this son of David points to Jesus's necessary lineage and royal role. Jesus, Matthew says here, is the rightful heir to the throne of David. For Jews, this was huge. Again, remember his audience. He's not writing to the Gentiles. He's writing to the Jews. And for them, it was huge because they who knew the Old Testament scripture understood that Messiah would be the fulfillment of the promise of God made to David. That at one point, there will be a son who will wear a crown and would be their king. And not just a temporary king like David and Solomon and the rest of them after, but he would be a king forever. I want you to notice what he says in 2 Samuel 7.16. In 2 Samuel 7.16, God reestablishes his covenant with David, and he says to them the, these words, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. There is a promise. There will be a king who will come in from your bloodline and he will end up reigning forever. There will be no end. And establishing this covenant with David, God bless, God promises to bless him with this heir. And as I mentioned a moment ago, there is no king in Israel at this time. Uh, they're, they're being ruled by another empire. So we must ask, as we read, has God's promise of an eternal king failed. Generation after generation has passed since David's death, and there's no sight of an Israelite king, let alone eternal. But you see, as Matthew will reveal in this gospel, beginning right here in 1-1, King Jesus is not like any other king that the world has ever seen. His kingdom is radically different. John picks up on that in his gospel. And John in chapter 18, verse 36 says this, Jesus standing before Pilate and Pilate accuses him. And Jesus tells him these words, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm Jesus's kingdom is of a different sort. He didn't come here. That's the whole point of Matthew. He didn't come here in order to overthrow the current Roman king. He didn't come here to primarily relieve the physical burdens of his people. He had another kind of mission. But so that we won't quickly dismiss him because he doesn't fit this kingly profile, this kingly mold Matthew carefully traces Jesus's lineage back to David, King David. 
And that's why he begins with Abraham, goes all the way to David, and then from David traces it name by name to King Jesus. The truth is Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of 2 Samuel. He is the ultimate fulfillment of Psalms chapter 2 where where God says, but as for me, I have installed my king upon Zion, my holy mountain. I will surely tell of the decrees of the Lord. He said to me, you are my son today. I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. This text here in Psalm 2 could not be true of David. Certainly he owned a lot of land, but not what was promised to Jesus, the very ends of the earth. This prophecy is only fulfilled in Jesus, the son of David, the ultimate king. And Matthew proves it by giving us his family tree. It's no surprising, right? That when you turn to Matthew chapter two, when Magi from the East come to Israel, who are they looking for? They're looking for the king. Where is the king, they ask, who had been born king of the Jews? They didn't miss it. Church, Jesus is king, amen? Amen. But the promised king would not, would soon begin to endure hardships and trials. Listen, no other king would endure. At the end of chapter two, we find out that he had to flee his town that he was born in because crazy Herod was after him. When he publicly announced the arrival of his kingdom in chapters three and four, he was driven out into the wilderness to face an enemy no earthly king had ever faced and prevailed. Throughout his ministry, he had to wonder about he says, we're with no place to lay his head. Having the entire created universe at his disposal. Remember what, what he said in, in Gethsemane. Don't you know I, I control angels? Don't you know that I can call a legion and I can be easily freed? I don't need to go through this. If my mission was to come and to overthrow the Romans, it would have been done deal long time ago. And having his created universe at his disposal, King Jesus is determined to accomplish the will of the Father in a very radical manner. So in the end, in order to bring about his kingdom, he, he undergoes the greatest crime ever perpetrated in the history of mankind. He's given a crown but not a golden crown with diadems, but rather a crown of thorns. As a king, he's given a robe, not one of royal majesty, but one of mockery and shame. And when King Jesus, our Lord and our Savior is lifted up, he's not lifted up to this great high throne of honor and esteem, but he's lifted up on the cross. And just in case anyone doubted his identity above his head was this sign, hail king of the Jews. Church, this is our king. 
And Matthew wants them to know this is their king. Their king came in the bloodline of David in order to inaugurate an institute of radically different kingdom. The promised king came in order to suffer in place of all those who would become part of his royalty. This is the length our king went to in order to establish his kingdom that began with the establishment of church. And I want to ask you this this morning. Is Jesus your king? Is Jesus your king? If he is, what are the implications of this doctrine for you this morning? For you as a Christian, for you who who acknowledges Jesus Christ as Lord, what does it mean? Well, because Jesus is the son of David, the promised king who established his kingdom. Right now, Jesus rules and reigns over all things and primarily in the church, through the church. And his reign is everlasting and he will come one day and will set up his reign on earth. But as such, Jesus, because he is your king now, today he reigns over your entire life. Think about this. We studied in Colossians that Jesus is the God, right? Who, who not only created the entire world, but the one who sustains all things. And get this, all things mean every minute and intricate detail of your life is sustained and ruled over by this God. And as your king, he has authority to not only declare and claim, but the power to perform what he desires. So Christians... Church, Jesus is your king. We have a great king. The son of David who died for us, brought us into his kingdom and reigns over us today. What a joy it is to be part of his people. So the first truth that Matthew wants us to see here is that Jesus is the promised Messiah to whom the entire Old Testament pointed to. Second, Jesus is the promised king who inaugurated a a different type of kingdom by his blood. And thirdly, I want us to look at the truth that Matthew emphasized next is that Jesus is the promised seed. Promised seed. Look what he says. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus is the son of Abraham. Now, what Matthew does with with this title here, this last one found in verse 1, is that he traces Jesus' lineage not just back to David the king, but all the way back to the founding father of a nation called Israel, all the way back to Genesis 12. And I want you to go there. Genesis chapter 12. We'll read a few verses from here. Abraham, as you know, according to Joshua 24 two, probably was an idolater. He worshiped idols along with Terah, his father, before God calls him out to go to an unknown place in order to set up a nation for God. And look what he says. He shows up to Abraham in Ur, And he tells them these words, chapter uh, 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, that's before his name was changed to Abraham. He said to Abram, 
Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you. I will make you a great nation and I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be a blessing. Blessed to be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who curses you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so these promises that came to Abraham, God says, first of all, I will make you a great nation. I will second bless you. I will make your name great. And he says, and your family will be a great blessing to the entire world. And so from here on out, God is determined to bless Abraham and, and church, even in the moments of complete disaster and failure, when, when he failed to trust the Lord, God was true to his promises. God was true to his covenant with Abraham and continued to bless him. He began to roll out these blessings upon his family, generation after generation after generation. So that when you come to Genesis 22, for instance, in verse 18, when God tells Abraham to sacrifice Isaac, but then he relented from that, God reaffirms his covenant with Abraham and he says this, and in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. In your seed, all the nations. Not just the Jews, but all the Gentile nations will be blessed because of your obedience, because you have trusted in me. Now, we all know the story of Israel, right? Instead of being the light to the nations as they were called to be, they became disillusioned with all the pagan practices and became like the nations. Instead of shining the light, they were succumbed by the darkness. The blessing that was promised to Abraham for all intents and purposes, seem to have run its course. Again, we ask, did God fail on his promises? Did God fail on his promises? Well, you, you forward to the New Testament. After the nation of Israel is no more, and only a sliver of hope remains, Matthew, in Matthew 1.1, introduces us to Christ the son of David, the son of Abraham. Why is this an important development? Well, consider what Paul writes in Galatians chapter three, verse 16. We just heard Galatians three and four read at the beginning of our sermon uh, service, but look what Paul writes in Galatians three sixteen. He says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed that is Christ. So Paul writes to this church and under the inspiration of the spirit, he says the promises that were given to Abraham of his seed being blessed and multiplied and bringing in a blessing to other nations, well, that seed was ultimately spoken of Christ. You know, chronologically, Galatians was written before Matthew, a few years before. And so Matthew wants us to see what, what probably in the church Paul had already declared. 
that in Christ, we have final fulfillment to the promise of Abraham. More specifically, Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of the Gentile blessing promises to Abraham. The nation of Israel could not fulfill these promises on their own. So God does it for them. I mean, this is amazing. The nation of Israel could not fulfill their promises. So God said, I'll do it. I will do it. I will send my beloved son, Jesus Christ. As the son of Abraham, Jesus came to redeem and to bless sinners. And this truth is so apparent throughout Matthew's gospel, but especially here in these first 17 verses. And this truth is Jesus is this Jesus is a friend of sinners. Church, Jesus is a friend of sinners. Matthew, uh, Martin Luther, he summarized these first 17 verses well when he said, Christ is the kind of person who is not ashamed of sinners. In fact, he even puts them in his family tree. Isn't that amazing? Some of us are, are ashamed of our family sometimes. If we were to ask to compose our, our family tree, we would probably leave that uncle out. Maybe that brother, right? They bring shame to, to our family name. And he says he's not ashamed to, to be friend of sinners. He even includes them. Have you ever wondered why Matthew highlights all the skeletons in the royal closet? I mean, look, look, at, look at these names. Matthew mentions four women, not including Mary, in his genealogy, and which is a rare occurrence, but that's not the problem. Uh, the women he chose to highlight have very questionable characters, to say the least. These are some odd people to highlight in your family tree. Look at verse 3, Judah, the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar. Tamar. Tamar was a woman who was wrongfully denied motherhood by her husband. And after he died, then by her brother-in-law, they both refused to raise up a descendant for her, which they actually had to do legally and biblically at that time. It was a moral thing not to do it. So Tamar then takes matters into her own hands and disguises herself as a prostitute and ends up getting pregnant with Judah, her father-in-law. That's Tamar. Rahab was a professional prostitute. She was the one who was living in the wall of Jericho, who saved the spies who went in to investigate the land, you remember in Joshua. She was a Gentile. Bathsheba was complicit in one of the most notorious adulteries of all time, which resulted in the death of her husband and then the death of her child as a result. I mean, think about who he's highlighting. This is Jesus's family tree. Jesus's descendants resulted from these sinful relationships. Ruth, Ruth is a godly woman, but she's a Moabite, a Gentile. But it's not about the women only. Notice the so-called righteous men of old. Abraham, a liar, a deceiver. Judah, whose idea it was to sell his brother Joseph into slavery 
and who was by his own admission worse than Tamar. Or consider David, this great king of Israel, an adulterer and murderer. I mean, David would find hard time finding a job here in California today because of his checkered past. Or Solomon, he's an idolater. Even Hezekiah, who was put in the category of good kings of Israel, ultimately became proud in being good. Man, and you thought your family tree was a mess, right? That's not so. One commentator said, it's as if Matthew puts a criminal lineup before us. It's this God's most wanted list. 47 names, 47 sinners in the eyes of God. There's no pattern of righteousness in this line of Jesus. Only adulterers, prostitutes, liars, murderers, idolaters, Jews and, and Gentiles alike. Wicked kings and some not so wicked kings. Church, Matthew wants us to see that Jesus is a friend of sinners. His dysfunctional family proves it. I mean, the writer would highlight this in the rest of this gospel. For instance, go to Matthew chapter 9. This is one thing that he wants them to see, that Jesus is the promised Messiah. He is the promised king. He is the promised seed of Abraham. But this king, this seed, this Messiah is a friend of sinners. Verse 10, and it happened that as Jesus was reclining at the table, Matthew 9, 10, in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were dining with Jesus and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why is your teacher eating with the tax collectors and sinners? But when Jesus heard this, he says, it's not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire compassion and not sacrifice. For I did not come to, the, to call the righteous, but sinners. I did not call, come to call the righteous, but those who understand that they're bankrupt without the righteousness of Christ. I came to call them. You know, some of you might be sitting in this room right now and saying, if only God knew the skeletons in my closet, he wouldn't have anything to do with me. Well, I got news for you, brother, sister. He knows. He knows. You can't hide anything from the Lord. But there's even a more comforting thing. He has done something about it already. Not that he knows and he's ashamed. He knows and he's calling you to come. He's calling you to come and to acknowledge Jesus, to behold Christ and to Take hold of Christ by faith because he came to redeem you. He came to renew you. I am reminded of a passage in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 where Paul writes in verse 9, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, do not be deceived, neither 
fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you stop to think and like, wow, who will inherit the kingdom of God then? And look what verse 11 says. And such were some of you. He's writing to the church full of ex fornicators and idolaters and homosexuals and those who were drunkards and swindlers. He's writing to them and he says, consider that some of you were like this, but what happened to you? You were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And in the spirit of our God. What that means is that, listen, this church continues that line of sinners. Every single person cannot escape that. We are all marred by sin. We are dead in sin. But Jesus Christ, the ultimate seed of Abraham, came in order to bring a blessing. Came in order to reconcile us to himself. His grace is wide. It condescends to the lowest. It reaches down to the Gentiles. He is not the king of the Jews only, brothers and sisters. He is king of the Gentiles. I mean, we sing this wonderful hymn, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. This is what we're talking about. Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than some of my sin. No, grace that is greater than all our sin. Friend, Sitting here this morning, if you have yet to meet this Jesus, I plead with you, don't delay. We're all in the same group. Sinners in need of great mercy, and we received mercy, and you can too. He is able to save sinners. As we conclude this study here this morning, Matthew closes his gospel in the same exact manner on the same exact note that he began in one, one go to Matthew 28, go to Matthew 28, the, the, the idea and the theme, right? That, that Matthew begins, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the promised King, that he is the promised seed goes through the entire gospel. And that is going to be the end. So after accomplishing his mission to seek and save the lost, having died our death and resurrected to life. Matthew declares in Matthew 28, Jesus E is King. Jesus is King. Matthew 28 verse 16. But the 11 gather disciples proceeded to Galilee to the mountain, which Jesus had designated when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some were doubtful. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, all authority. How could you say that Jesus? Oh, well, it's because Jesus is the son of David. He is the rightful heir to the throne. He is, in fact, the king of kings. And what is the king's charge? He says, make disciples of all the nations. 
Make disciples of all the nations. Why? Well, because this is why Christ has come. To bless the nations of the earth since he is the promised seed. And so Jesus continues and he says, go baptize and teach who? All whom the Messiah saves and calls into his kingdom. And finally, he says, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And church, so is he. God is with us now. And so the gospel of Matthew is the story of Christ. And the gospel of Matthew is the story of our mighty king. The gospel of Matthew is the story of a great seed who came in order to accomplish and give blessing to the Gentiles, something that the original nation failed to do. May we praise the Lord this morning. May we praise Jesus Christ. And if you're here without Jesus Christ, if you're still running and denying, thinking that you can find another way, another manner, oh Lord, we pray that you would stop. We pray that you would acknowledge Jesus. This season might be a very special season for you. Our Father, we are so indebted to this gospel message. What a broken family, but so are we. And what a mighty gospel that came in to redeem folks like Tamar and Bathsheba and Ruth and many other wicked and evil kings in his line. But also folks like Tim and many others who continue to despise you until you opened up our eyes to see the glory and the beauty of Jesus. And may you do the same with those who are in our midst who have yet to see Jesus for all that he is. Father, I pray that you would not leave these people in their place, that they would just leave without acknowledging the Lord without placing their faith. There's nothing else to do but to believe in the Son. And I pray that you would strengthen our faith as Christians as we are reminded that Christ alone is worthy of praise and worthy to live for. Bless us, Lord, to continue to behold Jesus and as we were reminded with this table to remember Jesus Christ because that's all that matters. We ask these things in Christ's name, amen.